And I think people need to wrap their head around the possibility, at least, that Omicron is a good thing. And Omicron the, is good, you said. Yes. So this is the hot take I was warning you about before the show. Uh-huh. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Corey Bradford. Corey, we've been off for two weeks. This is our first official show of 2022, and unofficial, actually. Uh, we've missed a lot of news over the past two weeks. What are we going to hit today? Let's just get right into it. Coming up, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene's Twitter is banned after five strikes of spreading COVID misinformation. We discuss the implications of social media banning accounts and the debate around freedom of speech and things like Section 230. Then bad takes from the internet. I'm gonna dive into Candace Owens' takedown of Trump and why Ted Cruz's daughter is making the news. And finally, Ravi sits down with former U.S. Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan to discuss how schools are failing students and what they can do to improve. But first things first, Omicron. Everybody's talking about it. This It's actually surging right now. CNBC reported that yesterday there was more than a million new cases of COVID-19, the highest single day total since the beginning of the pandemic pandemic. Uh, the cases are surging and it seems to be of real concern because how close is this going to get us back to possibly new lockdowns, new restrictions? You know, what do you think of all this? Well, I think it's really important. I think Omicron pushes us to adapt as a society. And I think one of the things we need to adapt is the metrics that we even use to track the severity of this crisis. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to move beyond measuring cases and start to think about are there other pieces of data that are actually more important? And I think in a situation where all available evidence seems to suggest that this is a less severe variant, I think we need to look at deaths and hospitalizations, yes. right? Because that's probably the more important statistic. And I also think that there are certain pieces of data we're using even to track immunity mm -hmm. that we need to update. For example, many of us, including me and some of the explainers I, I've done even for Lost Debate, was looking at antibodies uh, an antibody load uh, as the key marker of whether somebody was, you know, had the right kind of defense against COVID. But what we're learning now is that you also have, or we potentially even knew back then, is that, you know, your T cells are as important as anything. And I think Derek Thompson from The Atlantic had a good metaphor for this, where he said, if the antibodies are the moat in the castle, the T cells are the knights. Oh, and wow. what we've learned about vaccines is that for Omicron at least, uh -huh. the moat wasn't as effective as we thought it was, but maybe the nights are as effective or more effective than we thought they were. Well, roughly 75% of all new COVID cases have been Omicron. According to the New York Times, I believe today, as of today and over the last two weeks, we've seen a 239% increase in cases, but deaths are going down while cases are going up exponentially. So that really does point to all this data that's saying Omicron is simply not as fatal as Delta or the original variant of COVID-19 that caused all that trouble in 2020. And perhaps lockdowns and all those types of restrictions are just not the way to go this time around. Right. And I think people need to wrap their head around the possibility, at least, that Omicron is a good thing. And Omicron the, is good, you said. Yes. So this is the hot take I was warning you about before the show. Uh -huh. And I was listening to somebody on Dr. Peter Atia's podcast mm -hmm. yesterday, and it was a public health expert saying, essentially, it's possible that Omicron is what he called nature's vaccine. And what he meant mm -hmm. was there are 93% of people in poor countries who don't have access to vaccines right now. Mm -hmm. And you know he put the number in trillions and trillions of dollars that it would take to vaccinate the world's population mm -hmm. and a lot of time that we don't have to vaccinate mm -hmm. them. So it's possible that an actually a less severe virus mm -hmm. that spreads really fast mm -hmm. actually is in their interest. Because I think we always look at it through our interests in this country, the, vaccine, the people who have access to vaccines, the kind of people 
um, who can take for granted certain things that other people can't. So if this thing spreads really fast and actually builds up immunity in people who weren't going to get the vaccine before, maybe for you know my cousins in India, for example, maybe it's a good thing for them. Yeah, I mean, could it be like the chicken pox where, you know, if you get it as a kid, you don't get it as an adult, it's, it's safer to get it as a kid, you know, because I knew people growing up who used to have chicken pox parties where if one kid got the chicken pox, they bring all the other kids over to just get it out the way. So Omicron parties? Yeah, well, I guess Lost Debate is an Omicron party, I guess, because <laughs> what people can't see behind this, the, the cameras is a lot of our staff are here in person. But that's not, you know, for I think a lot of people are, are beyond the restrictions. Now. Yes. And we're going to get to that when we talk about the politics. But... I think people are saying, look, if the unless there's data that changes, and mm -hmm. I think everybody reserves the right to say, like, if this thing evolves and gets more serious, mm -hmm. then we can evolve our response. To that I think we need to be mature enough to be able to handle that. But you know, when the facts change, our our response can change. But right now, the facts seem to suggest that we have a reason to think that we can move beyond this potentially in 2022 and get to the endemic phase, which is not yes. necessarily a bad phase yes. of this thing. Yes, and when we talk about facts changing, let's talk about the CDC for, for instance. Uh, December 27th, CDC changed the isolation period. It used to be, originally I believe it was two weeks, 14 days. Then they changed it to 10 days. And now the CDC cutting the recommended isolation period from 10 days to five if you test positive but are asymptomatic. As of the 27th of last December, they're saying that it's now five days if you, you've tested positive for COVID, but you have no symptoms. Once you hit no symptoms, you have five days before you can go back into society. And the question is, why now five days? Is this because Omicron is not as deadly or does this have more of like an economic you know, factor to it. Yeah, I'm of two minds to this. I'm, I definitely, I'm with people who were a little bit frustrated and poked fun at this saying, you know, the CDC is basically just making things up as they go along. Yeah. But on the other hand, I think we've been asking the CDC to take into account other things other than strict public health mm -hmm. to say like, what about mental health? What about other societal impacts? What about economic impacts? And it seems to me, and basically saying be more pragmatic. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that although this seems a little herky jerky and, and the timing of it seems a little suspicious, in the end, this seems like this, the CDC taking into account our collective will, which seems very low to, to put up with any of this stuff anymore. And secondarily, the economic impact of any future lockdowns. And I think mm -hmm. what they were seeing was given the spread of Omicron and the lack of severity, we would have had situations where almost every business in America, if they were following CDC guidance, yeah. would have been closed. Absolutely. And I don't think our country could have stomached that. So in many ways, I, I applaud them for this, even if it if it seems a little bit confusing to people. Yeah, it does seem a little confusing. And people, they tend to ignore things like the CDC when they keep changing. But like you're saying, when new information gets introduced, you have to change with that information. And that's what science is. We get new information and then we adapt our theories and our you know, scientific laws based off of the new information that gets introduced. Well, one thing I would ask of the CDC, and this has been true since the beginning of the pandemic, is to be more honest about their rationale. Yes. So for example, back when, when Fauci told people don't go out to buy masks, there's some data that suggests, or some reporting that seems to suggest that the reason he he even knew that masks were effective back mm -hmm, then, mm -hmm. but what he was worried about was a supply shortage of masks for public health workers. But he wasn't super upfront about that back then. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of those cases where the CDC could just say, "Look, we're taking into a, we're adapting as a public health institution, and we need to take into account things beyond just a strict." public health guidance. We have to look at the the larger societal impact and our own legitimacy. And so we're taking into account these other things. And I don't think they've been as clear about that as they could be. 
No, they haven't. But what about the political fault lines that seem to have been changing during the time of COVID? Because in the beginning, it was there was a clear liberal stance of stay masked up, stay socially distanced. When vaccines were introduced, get vaccines, vaccine mandates were introduced. There was full support for that. And then on the opposite end for the conservatives, there was vaccine hesitancy. There was anti-maskers. There was these restrictions are going too far. Now it seems like the lines are just getting blurred between these two different sides when it comes to their approach to COVID. So how does that because, you know, Governor Abbott, for instance, was tweeting that he was, you know, proud that Texas was able to defeat Biden's vaccine mandates. But at the same time, he's asking FEMA and Biden for assistance because of the surge in COVID there. So how does that change everything? Right. I think like if you squint, you can see a little bit of daylight between the two different parts of Abbott's position. If mm -hmm. I want to give him full credit, right? <laughs> you know, on the one hand, you're talking about mandates, which are like, as some people would, would argue, I don't believe this, but some people would argue it's like a restriction on people's freedom. That's, that's, unnecessary. And then on the other hand, you ha he's talking about supply issues, which are making things available to people who want them or need yes. them. So one could argue different. that it is consistent. Now, politically, if I were Biden, I would, and just morally, I would give the supplies to Texas that he's asked for if they're available and then say, look, I'm giving you Texans what you need because your governor has been irresponsible. That's the politics of it. Yeah. Now, I think the symbolism of Texas is, and, and Florida, even more mm -hmm. importantly, is interesting because these are states that largely restricted a lot of the more stringent parts of the lockdown, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. mask mandates, vaccine mandates, et cetera. And there's data to suggest that these states fared better economically during yeah. the pandemic. Mm -hmm. At least this Politico came out with a ranking of states recently mm -hmm. uh, that showed that Texas, for example, fared better than average. Not like amazing, but better yeah. than average economically, but below average on public health. Mm -hmm. And in a way, that's the trade-off that they the that they wanted to make mm -hmm. as a state. Now, mm -hmm. obviously, there are individuals in the state that didn't want that. That's to me the the, the sort of core philosophy here is is a, a question of costs and benefits. And at the heart of it, I think a lot of these states made a calculation to say, all right, we either wanna we wanna save more lives and maybe harm the economy or take more risks with our economy, or we wanna um, risk more lives and get the economy going again. And so in some ways where we are today is predictable. But when you risk lives to get the economy going again, you still have that backlash because look at Abbott now having to rely on federal assistance. And look at it from the perspective of what if Trump was in office? You know, Trump used to demand that blue states follow conservative policies if they were going to get federal you know, benefits. Uh, he even blamed California, saying that they weren't raking leads properly, and that's the reason why they were having wildfires. So if, what, if, if Biden took that approach and said, well, Texas and Florida, you weren't doing the preventative measures to, to prevent this crisis in the first place, so why should we give you that you know, additional help. Would that help or hurt him politically? I think it would hurt him, but it would also be, I think, morally suspect just because a state is, like, even if I, if I were to agree with everything you just said, which mm -hmm. is they didn't do what they needed to do, that doesn't mean everybody in that state didn't. That's like true. Lena Hidalgo, the Harris County judge, for example, mm -hmm. It's not like she wasn't trying to do everything possible for Harris County yeah. or like individuals in the state deserve to not have access to resources. That's why we're a country, you know, mm -hmm. not not a confederation. But I also think there's like somebody could write a political philosophy book on the evolving politics of COVID. And in the beginning, it was this question of lockdowns and it was a question of economic arguments saying like we need to get the economy hum humming again. And then it was a question of certain mandates like mask mandates and it was all about freedom. And then it was about vaccines. And then that was really about a question of how do we trust experts and should we be skeptical of science and experts? And just wondering where we are right now. And it seems like we're having a debate about competency, which is 
we've kind of gotten beyond a lot of these debates, even though like the vaccine mandates, for example, are, are making their way through the courts. It seems like the effects of the vaccine mandates have largely been borne one way or another. And mm-hmm. the, whatever the courts do is not really going to have much of an effect on whether too many people get vaccinated in response to the mandates. But, you know, the issues of supply of testing, monoclonal antibodies, um, you know, just public health resources. The Republicans are seizing on lack of availability of certain things to say, Biden, you are not competent and you promised us competent governance. Mm-hmm. And so my sense is that at least the beginning of 2022 is going to be a debate about what, who's competent and who isn't. Because even what we're talking about, like we're saying Governor Abbott is not competent. They're saying Biden is incompetent and he ran on competency. So this is maybe clash. that's where we are right now. Yeah, that clash between the federal government's responsibility and the role of the state government. Well, Corey, let's go to our next story. New this morning, Twitter has permanently banned the personal account of Georgia Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. Taylor Greene was banned for, quote, repeated violations of our COVID misinformation policy. I think she had five opportunities. They said this was her fifth strike. Mm-hmm. Is this a good idea to ban her or anybody else from these platforms? Well, based off of everything that I've heard her say, I'm not going to miss seeing her on Twitter. (laughs) However, I think you're going out a very dangerous road whenever you deplatform anyone for the types of things she was deplatformed for. Generally speaking, I think a person should only be removed from like social media and the internet if they're advocating violence or promoting some type of very harmful hate speech. And some of the things that Marjorie Taylor Greene has said over the years could be considered hate speech. I mean, she said some anti-Semitic things. She went on some rant saying that Kwanzaa wasn't a real holiday a couple of weeks ago. So some of the things she said are definitely problematic, certainly certainly problematic. But does that constitute the type of violent hate speech that would reach the levels that I think you need to reach to be banned from the Internet? No, I don't think so. So I think I'm with you. I think unless you're you know, posting instructions on how to build a bomb or to make other types of weapons, or like you said, you know, saying something that could predictably lead to violence, Mm -hmm. you know, in a way that we all can recognize. But these are private companies. So in a way, I think that uh, they're free to choose whatever messages they they keep or take off of a platform. But that doesn't mean I think they're right when they do it. So for example, I think when these companies ban content about the Wuhan lab leak theory or certain content about Rittenhouse, which we've been affected by, some of our content has been slowed down because of that. I think they're wrong, mm-hmm. but I don't think that I don't agree with Elizabeth Warren and Josh Hawley that these are monopolies yet that need the federal government to intervene. Yeah, I don't see them as being monopolies because they have other competition that's, you know, Facebook, Twitter, they all have competition. And as far as if they're wrong for banning certain content, no, I, I, t- I totally agree because they're, they're private companies. They, they're not they don't have to abide by the federal government. There's this thinking that the First Amendment applies to private companies and what they allow on their platforms. And that's simply not true. The First Amendment protects the government from being able to throw you in jail or punish you for something you've said. It doesn't really apply to private corporations like that. In fact, the First Amendment actually protects Twitter from being forced to carry uh, the words of somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene just because she's an elected official. Right. And so, yeah. So yeah, where this gets tricky though is because there's this this provision of a law called Section 230 of the Communications and Decency Mm -hmm, Act, mm -hmm. which is a law that was passed in 96, essentially most people credit it for creating the modern internet. Yeah. And it's, in, in, it's explosive power of just a few words that essentially say, if you are a, uh, if you are the rails of the internet, meaning you're an internet service provider, or you're a platform like Facebook or Twitter, uh, and people are posting content or trading content on your platform, you can't be sued for yeah. the things that people do. And what that essentially means is that for them, 
they were allowed to scale without mm -hmm. having to intervene in all these different interactions. And mm -hmm. largely that's a good thing, yeah. but there's becoming, there's a growing bipartisan consensus, both Democrats and Republicans who wanna either repeal this law or reform this law. And most people are heralding that as some kind of you know positive story, whereas I'm a little bit more skeptical. Absolutely. It seems like there's a very political tilt to the things that Twitter has been attacking as of late. Because I mean, are there any examples of like a major liberal person being removed from this platform? I mean, well, I, I don't know about Twitter, but I think, you know, there was a, a study from the New York University, which basically tried to show that regardless of any decision to take one content or mm -hmm. another off, what that study demonstrated is that conservative content is flourishing on these platforms. Oh, yes. So yes. even if these people are taking off one piece of content or another, and mm -hmm. even if they have a bias, towards taking down conservative content, which I would suspect is true just yeah. from our experience. Yeah. Like when we post videos uh, on certain platforms, I won't call them out because they might give us even more trouble because of this. <laughs> we have a harder time getting ads approved on content that seems to be conservative. I, yeah. That's just our experience. Yeah, I've now, noticed that. Now that doesn't mean that conservatives don't do well on these platforms. Now, I think, and that gets to the heart of what the different uh, political parties wanna get out of reforming section 230. Mm -hmm. Most of the Republicans who wanna reform section 230 wanna force platforms to justify when they take, when they deplatform any voice, but really they're concerned about conservative voices and their mm -hmm. sense is that people within these internet companies are liberals yeah. and who are gonna have a certain tilt when they take down content. Mm -hmm. I think they're probably right about their their baseline assumption yeah. about the people who work at these companies. now. But there are people like Joel Kaplan at Facebook, for example, yeah. very powerful people, Peter Thiel on the board mm -hmm. of, of Facebook, who are prominent conservatives at these companies. But putting that aside, now liberals, on the other hand, want to uh, force these companies to censor content that they view as hate speech or vaccine misinformation. And this is where I get a little tricky because the new uh, CEO of Twitter did an interview with the MIT Technology Re Review where he said something to the effect of, I'm not, I'm not as concerned about what's true or what's not than about the effect of certain posts. And to me, I'm just not- It's a little problematic. I don't trust him to make that judgment yeah. call. It's very problematic. And when you put it like that, a big question, going back to the original topic here about Marjorie Taylor Greene, does removing someone like that from a platform just give them more power in the end? Because now she's become like forbidden fruit. It's like this thing that, oh, they don't want us to see this. They don't, they don't want us to hear from her. So she must be saying something they don't want us to know. And so does that just really empower her as a Congresswoman? Well, it empowers her, but it also, I think, from a business perspective for mm. these companies. Like for me, I'm not like as, like do I, I, I try not to think of it, are we helping or hurting any one person versus mm -hmm. like what kind of incentives are we creating? And mm -hmm. I think these companies should be a little bit careful even from a business perspective. Because yeah. what happened when, uh, you know, somebody went on Joe Rogan uh, last week, Robert Malone went yeah. on Rogan and some of those videos I think got banned about yeah. that content. Rogan then went on an alternative platform mm -hmm. to talk about it. I think we went on Getter, yeah. uh, which is I think Jason Miller's platform or some some uh, conservatives platform. Now that's a threat to these companies like Twitter, Facebook, yeah, etc. It's also evidence to me that they don't have a monopoly. So yeah. when you go on, like when Rogan goes on that platform with his 11 million or whatever uh, view, viewers and listeners for mm -hmm. every episode, mm -hmm. and he starts to bring some of his audience to alternative platforms, that's, if I were Twitter, I would take that seriously. It would make me way more cautious about taking down content. But it also is evidence that people like Elizabeth Warren and Hawley uh, may not be correct that these are, are monopolies because Rogan wouldn't be able to do what he did if they were truly monopolies. But in regards to the Section 230, and this is something that I've always wondered about this, 
when when they take down some of this information, I've always thought that maybe they're trying to protect themselves legally because say someone sees vaccine misinformation on Twitter from Marjorie Taylor Greene, they take it literal and it, and it causes them to either like not get a vaccine or do something dangerous and they get affected by it. Could they somehow take legal action against Twitter? No, that's what 230 that's is what about. That's what 230 yeah. protects them from. 230 protects you from that. And people could be like, well, why? Like, just think about the sheer amount of interactions that happen on these platforms, the scale, the speed of it mm -hmm, all. Mm -hmm. It would be impossible to run a social media company yeah. if you were liable for everything everybody has said. This Absolutely. show wouldn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. YouTube wouldn't host the show. We would have to go through content moderation rules, mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. equivalent of being on broadcast, on broadcast television. Yeah. We have to send them the thing. All the lawyers would lawyer it down. Uh, and we wouldn't allow comments on these, which probably be good for everybody <laughs> but we um because we wouldn't we wouldn't be able to control what people wouldn't say we wouldn't it, yeah. be able to run it by our lawyers the internet would be much slower it, it would resemble the very corporate media that people are, are so critiquing right yeah. so we need to be really careful about that so i think to me i don't trust these senators to do what's right whenever i see people lining up wanting to ban content yeah uh, on two different sides of a political spectrum that they don't like mm -hmm. just because they agree that they both want to ban content doesn't mean they're going to actually can come together and come to some kind of solution because once they really dig in on the details they're not trying to create the same world no absolutely not that's that's where the conflict is and it's almost like banning books it's like you know you, I think Twitter would have been better off doing like what Facebook does and just whenever Marjorie Taylor Greene said something that was infactual or, or just playing incorrect, just say, hey, this is this is this is wrong. This is misleading. This is untrue. And just put like a fact checker thing on it instead of just deplatforming her entirely. Right. And, and it, I think banning books is a good metaphor. You know, I, there's this video online of Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens going to uh, some forum in Canada and he was debating free speech and he asked people in the audience, he said, who in this audience would trust somebody else to decide for you what you should read? To whom you would delegate the task of deciding for you what you could read? Who to whom you would give the job of deciding for you, relieve you of the responsibility of hearing what you might have to hear? Do you know anyone? Hands up. Do you know anyone to whom you'd give this job? And I'm sure Parag Agrawal, the CEO of Twitter, is a, is a nice guy. Mm -hmm. I don't know who he is. Mm -hmm. I don't trust him to decide what I should read. Absolutely. So, like I said, outside of a... And by the way, when Hitchens said that, nobody raised their hands, from what yeah. I understand. So... Uh, for me, that's that's why I take a narrow stance like you do. Like, unless it's something like a bomb or something or something very clearly that's going to incite violence, I would let it stand. But these are private companies, and my sense is we're going to enter a new age. Maybe 2022 is the age of the new internet companies, the new social media platforms really blossoming. Yeah. And that could be a good or a bad thing, but it certainly yeah. would be bad for Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, Trump media. We'll, we'll see where it goes. For real. Yes, absolutely. Coming up, some of the bad takes from news from the past few weeks. Welcome to Bad Takes, where I analyze the news media's worst takes from last week's top stories. Here at Lost Debate, we took a couple of weeks off for the holidays, but stupidity in the media never takes a day off. So a lot of terrible takes piled up over the holidays, like discarded Christmas trees are now piling up on the side of the road. Our first bad take comes from the Dallas Morning News. They made headlines last week for publishing a story about Ted Cruz's 13-year-old daughter, who has been on TikTok talking about what it's like to be the daughter of one of America's most divisive senators. Now, the article, frankly, isn't very newsworthy, but that didn't stop Dallas Morning News from promoting it with a tweet that read, Ted Cruz's daughter says she disagrees with most of her father's views. If there is one rule, 
that illustrates the last shreds of decency left in American politics, it would be that we don't go after the kids of politicians. And many on the right support that rule. And they've been blasting Dallas Morning News for even mentioning Cruz's daughter or her TikTok account. Now, it's a little ironic because some of those right wing folks who are now totally against talking about the kids of politicians are the same exact people that are trying to publish Ashley Biden's diary while trying to convince us that Hunter Biden's crackfield laptop holds all of Daddy Joe's secrets. But the difference here is Biden's kids are all grown up and Ted Cruz's daughter is only 13. That's why I actually fully agree with the right on this one. Let's leave the kids out of politics until their 18th birthday. After that, just like with the military, they're fair game. Our next bad take comes from a recent article published by The Ringer, the headline of which reads, it's time to accept that millennials and Gen Z are the same generation. Now, me personally, I've done some extensive work on the stark differences between American generations. And by extensive work, I mean I've analyzed their memes and made some semi-popular TikTok videos imitating them. But the writer here argues that millennials and Gen Zers are forged from the same digital monoculture. The writer even tries to argue that it's, quote, trivial to note that Zoomers, unlike millennials, were too young to witness 9-11. How the hell is that trivial? Does he not know that Gen Z has a whole meme trend called dank memes don't melt steel beams? But seriously, millennials saw the world transformed by 9-11 with their own eyes. And that's something you just can't learn from the history books. As for this digital monoculture, he points out to the fact that Gen Z pop star Olivia Rodrigo sounds no different from Taylor Swift and that she doesn't seek out or represent any sort of generational break in popular music. So this reporter's main argument here is that millennials and Gen Z are the same generation because they grew up on the same music? Okay, no, doesn't work like that. A lot of Gen Xers grew up listening to the Beatles, but that doesn't mean they know exactly what it was like to watch them live on Ed Sullivan while their drunk World War II veteran father threw his scotch at the screen while screaming, those British long-haired commies don't have a thing on Bing Crosby. Experiencing something secondhand doesn't give you the same feeling as when it first happens. And there's a noticeable difference in the way millennials and Gen Z process information. Their humor is entirely different from one another and they have a different set of shared experiences. So to the author of this article, If you're just getting too old to tell the difference between certain groups of young people, just say that. And finally, we turn to an extremely bad take from conservative pundit Candace Owens regarding Donald Trump's vaccination status. It all started during an interview with The Daily Wire. More people have died under COVID this year, by the way, under Joe Biden, than under you. And more people took the vaccine this year. So people are questioning how... Oh, no, the vaccine worked, but some people aren't taking it. The ones ones that get very sick and go to the hospital are the ones that don't take their vaccine. But it's still their choice. And if you take the vaccine, you're protected. Look, the results of the vaccine are very good. And if you do get it, it's a very minor form. The vaccine is one of the greatest achievements of mankind. Whoa, Trump said something based in science that was both truthful and helpful. So it must have been flying pigs that caused all those holiday flights to be canceled. In response, Owens released a rambling video where she tried to explain Trump's newfound support 
for the vaccine. You oftentimes forget like how old Trump is. He comes from a generation, I've seen other people that are older have the exact same perspective. Like they came from a time before TV, before internet, before being able to conduct their independent research, you know, and everything that they read in a newspaper it, that was pitched to them, like they believed that that was a reality. I believe also that he only reads the mainstream media news, believe it or not. I do not believe that Trump reads um, or partakes in any other news sources. Um, you know, I don't believe that Trump is on the internet. Okay, so now that Trump isn't spreading COVID misinformation, he's suddenly an old man who doesn't know how to use the internet? That's some serious mental gymnastics coming from someone who's been a huge Trump supporter for years. Wait a minute. I get it now. For some on the far right, anti-vax ideology actually trumps Trump. First of all, the science is clear. The vaccine is effective at preventing severe disease from COVID. And I also take issue with Owen's statement that Trump is from a time before TV. Trump grew up in the 1950s when televisions were popping up in nearly every home. And is it really that bad that back then people used to get their information from media sources that were fact-checked and peer-reviewed? Sounds a lot better than our current climate of conspiracy theorists and armchair experts who use the internet to spread alternative facts, aka lies, with no accountability whatsoever. But I'm not surprised here. Candace Owens has long been the queen of terrible takes. She actually once argued that the U.S. should invade Australia over their COVID regulations. Maybe she just wanted some fresh kangaroo meat. But with this take, Owens is graduating from the queen to the goat of bad takes. She's actually making me defend Trump. This was the first definitive time that Donald stood up for the vaccine. And Owens is just reducing that to some ageist rant, promoting the type of unchecked misinformation that she helps peddle daily. This wasn't just a bad take. It was an irresponsible take that was horribly short-sighted and fundamentally flawed. Ravi, of all these bad takes, which do you think is the worst? I, I'm kind of with you on the ringer one, because I, <laughs> I think if you were to use our current example, like future yeah. generations after the pandemic, mm -hmm. like because they maybe, you know, read about the pandemic, right? It's not you're to your point, it's not the same as experiencing Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And obviously the experience of going through this is gonna shape this generation. So I think that's a particularly bad take. I think the Owens Trump stuff, I don't know. It's like, kind of to be expected. It's also hard to track Trump, right? Like mm -hmm. you said that it was his first time really defending the vaccine, but like before it existed, mm -hmm. he was like hyped up about it. Yeah, like, Operation and, Warp Speed. Yeah. And I think that may be the main reason why he's defending the vaccine. It's like, you know, this technically was developed while he was still in office. And right. so I think in 2024, perhaps he maybe still wants to take those points and say, hey, I'm the one who really gave you guys a vaccine, but that really clashes with the anti-vax forces on his side of things. Right, right. Yeah, and I, th I think that the ringer, there's, I think there's this sense that uh, like that th if you can just create a really like insightful, like it's almost like a postmodern way of writing. You'd yeah. be like, oh, let me just take a few examples and they seem like one another and there's a pattern here. So let yeah. me just spin this into an essay. What's weird to me was that was leading the Ringer's website. It was the yeah. top article on their website. Yeah, it's interesting stuff, but there's definitely a total difference between millennials and Gen Z. For instance, when we showed the Gen Z memes on here, we're both millennials and we didn't get half of that. So, right. You know? Yeah, I, and there's obviously big differences within generations. Like I'm like an older millennial and sometimes the, the younger millennials makes no sense to me, like most of the staff that we have here. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Coming up, Robbie talks with Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan about what's wrong with our education system.
for the most part, students are heading back to the classroom this week. It's a starkly different picture now as compared to our first pandemic year, which we remember for widespread school closures and all of the many tolls that they took on parents, teachers, and above all, our kids. We actually did some reporting on this in our last episode, uh, which you can go back and listen to. But the heated debate over COVID in schools has been just one part of a bigger question every educator and really every citizen should constantly be asking. Are we doing the very best we can for our country's students? And that's why I sat down with Arne Duncan, the former Secretary of Education under President Obama, to talk about the standards we should be trying harder to meet. I think I heard you say once in an interview that education should be, or you probably said this many times, but uh, that education should be a bipartisan issue. And certainly during your tenure as Secretary of Education, I saw firsthand how that could work. That feels like it was 100 years ago, Arnie. <laughs> <laughs> what, what has happened to our education politics? It's not like it was great back then. It's yeah. not like we were, we were happy with where things were back then. But I am a little startled by the fact that we look, I look back on that like it was these golden times now. Yeah, it is crazy. We're, we're all getting a little bit older. But it seems like a short time ago, and it seems like you know, decades ago, eons ago, to your point. And I'll just start with that first premise that education, it's not a should be, education has to be the ultimate bipartisan issue. For me, there's nothing you know, right or left or Democrat or Republican, liberal, conservative about trying to lead the world in access to high quality pre-K to make sure our babies got the good start. There's nothing political ideological about trying to get high school graduation rates up to you know 90% and then 92% and 95% and reducing dropout rates. And again, trying to lead the world in college completion. These are nation building goals. If we want to attract and retain good jobs, if we want to break cycles of poverty, if we want to have upper mobility and a thriving middle class, I don't know how to do any of those things unless we provide a world-class education. And what I always say is I just wish we would unite behind those big picture goals. And we can have lots of vigorous debate about the best ways to achieve those goals and strategies and what works best, you know, in a rural community be different than urban and, you know, south of, you know, southern states, northern states, whatever, California, Massachusetts, these are different places. So we should never have one way to reduce dropout rates and increase graduation rates. We should have lots of flexibility and innovation. We should measure what's working. We should see what's working and learn from it together. I'm always very honest. I can't tell you what the Republican philosophy is on education now, what the ideology is. It's just, it's, it just seems to be, be gone. And I worry that we as Democrats, it's so important that we invest and there's been unprecedented money recently going into education, which is fantastic. But for me, it's never just about resources. It's always about outcomes and accountability, holding ourselves accountable for better results. I was watching the Democratic debates in 2020, and there was almost nothing interesting being said about education or courageous. Like if you're a Democrat running and you're saying, let's increase resources, unless you're in a special situation, that's not a courageous thing to say. It, it might be the right thing to say, uh, but it, it you don't. it's not a hard thing to do. What's hard per what you said is to talk about how is the money being used? Are we holding people accountable for children? Are we actually taking on interest groups within our own party who might not have, not, 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 might not be doing the best things for kids? How do we, I think you once called like an like the bureaucracy, like an ossified system sometimes that can take on a life of its own. Where are we right now in our politics in the Democratic Party uh, on those harder issues and how do we get some daylight right now? Those resources, that investment is, is critical, but it's not sufficient. And when you look at you know, massive achievement gaps, I've said repeatedly for me, the goal is not to go back to quote unquote normal post-pandemic because normal didn't serve literally tens of millions of children uh, in America well enough. 
And so how we raise the bar for all children, how we close those achievement gaps. We know today when young people drop out of high school, they're basically condemned to poverty and social failure. Um, if, they, if they do graduate, but don't have any plans or don't have any you know, skills, whether to enter the world of work or go on, you know, go on to further education, you know, there are no good jobs out there in the legal economy for high school dropout. There are almost none if you just have a high school diploma. So some form of education, two-year universities, four-year, you know, uh, two community colleges, four universities, trade, technical, vocational training, whatever, some form of education has to be the goal for every high school graduate. Unless we get really serious about that, um, we're going to continue to see this divide in our country. I see this in, this is so much bigger than education. For me, you know, we've talked about this, you know, the, the haves and the have-nots, this, you know, K-shaped recovery that everyone's talked about coming out of the pandemic. Um, those that are going up are the educated. Those where things aren't going well um, are really, really struggling. And education is that fork in the road, is that dividing line. And then the, the bigger thing I worry about is just, um, I, I mean, these, these are all huge things, but I really worry about our democracy fraying at the edges. And I worry about those who have been shut out of good educational opportunity. And whether that's you know, inner city urban, black and brown, whether that's white rural, whatever it might be, um, we're, we're seeing challenges to our democracy that, I, that have rocked me and that have rocked our nation. I never anticipated. But I really do see it as a failure to give every child in this country a high quality education, to allow them to think critically, to allow them to make their own decisions. And I worry about a, a caste system here in America based upon educational opportunity. And I don't think our democracy can survive that. One of the biggest moves you made in your tenure as Secretary of Education was to stridently push for the Common Core standards. As somebody who came out of politics, that was interesting about that fight to me, was that that was a left-right extreme coalition against Common Core that seems to have echoes in other things like anti-vaccinations and things like that. And I'm not saying they're the exact same thing, but it it rhymes to me a little bit. Give us a little bit of a history lesson, like what happened there and where are we today? All we were trying to do is make sure that if young people graduated from high school, they could actually take college level classes. That was literally the entire culture. We spend somewhere between seven and nine billion, would it be billion dollars each year for high school graduates to take remedial classes in college which means they're burning through Pell Grants, they're burning through loans, uh, they're taking classes that are not credit bearing. Nobody wins in that situation, no one wins. And in many communities, it's literally 60, 70% of their graduates. And so what we try to do is not set a standard, but just say, if you're in Texas, we just want the University of Texas to certify that if students are passing these classes, they can take college level classes, University of Tennessee, whatever, whatever it might be. And that, that was literally, that was the entire goal. We just didn't fully appreciate by any stretch the, you know, I was just honest, you know, what, I, what I perceived then and now is a real pushback against the, the historic nature of our first African-American president and that anything he was going to try and do would be somehow tainted. And, you know, the tea, you know we, didn't, we didn't see the emergence of the Tea Party. And again, Obamacare going through Obama course. So that was a pushback from the right. On the left, if we just would have stayed with the higher standards, we probably would have had less pushback. But then we, we talked about great teachers matter. And we wanted to look at you know, what teachers were doing to accelerate student learning and having student learning just be a piece, just one piece of teacher evaluation, which again, theoretically, shouldn't be a wildly controversial topic. I always say the goal is never just to have a teacher teach. The goal is to have students learn. And we know how much 
you know, just one great teacher, you know, that's, you know folks have done amazing studies, Ross Chetty and others that, you know, one good teacher in middle school raises the lifetime earnings of that class by $250,000. It's a staggering. And three bad teachers in a row, you'll, you'll probably never catch up. So this isn't about test scores, or whatever. This is just about changing lives. Right now, there is a ideological pushback against many of the tenets of reform that you and I believed in uh, back then and still believe in. And I I think in many ways, this is a good faith debate. Uh, but I think standardized testing is so central to this because without standardized testing, you don't know uh, how different subgroups are doing within a school. So you can't tell whether a school is doing much better by its uh, more affluent kids and the lower income kids or you know students on IEPs versus students who aren't, et cetera. So that's really important for equity reasons, which is why a lot of civil rights groups supported have continued to support standardized testing. Are you worried at all that we're pulling, especially I think the pandemic is giving some states an excuse, especially more progressive states, to, to chip away at the testing regimes? Are you worried about this at all? You know, when I go to the doctor for my annual checkup, my doctor just doesn't start prescribing a bunch of stuff to me. Doctor asks, how am I doing? How am I feeling? Does a blood test. And from that conversation, figures out what help you need. And again, coming out of a pandemic where we've had, you know, so many millions of kids fall behind. We've had two to 2.5 million students who never made that transition to virtual school, basically disappeared. Um, we have to know where those kids are and call it testing, whatever, call it assessments. Now, with, you know, with technology, we can assess on an ongoing basis. We can assess every day. With technology, that, that means it doesn't have to be one big high stakes test. Oh, no, no, no. Like, there could be like one question that takes three minutes at the end of a lesson that goes into a system that allows you to, to quickly just gauge, did did the students learn where to place a comma in a sentence? Did they Do they comprehend the passage that we read today? And it could be a small fraction of their lesson. It doesn't have to be the dominant piece, but it does tell you, hey, did, did this happen today? If a student's coming back to school are they three months behind? Are they six months behind? Are they nine months behind? Are they ahead in math and behind in reading? You have to know where they are. And then you have to figure out ways to help them accelerate or keep going or catch up or whatever it might be. But to just either guess or have a hunch or have an intuition or just prescribe the same medicine to every kid, that boggles my mind. President Obama uh, said to you when you took the job uh, as education secretary, he says, just do what you think is right for kids and let me worry about the politics. That doesn't, as somebody who's worked with a lot of politicians in my life, that seems highly abnormal. Did he really do that? Like, did he give you that that leeway? And why was that important? And why is that in such short supply right now? President Obama, you know, I we worked together when he was in the Illinois legislature. We worked together when he was in the Senate. We visited schools together. I'll never forget, we visited one school where we had closed it, brought in new staff, turned it around. Kids were doing radically better. And I literally left them, left him there because I had to go to my next meeting. He just kept asking teachers, what's different here? How did this happen? You know, same kids, same socioeconomic challenges, same whatever. It was actually the school where he announced my nomination. But it wasn't that wasn't by accident. That was a school that had sort of blown him away by what's possible. So he, um, he had tremendous courage in this space. And he obviously had got a, you know, received a great education, but he identified with kids who didn't. Um, his wife, Michelle, I, I grew up, you know, being friends of her brother and playing ball. Great, great family here on the South Side of Chicago, but neither parent had gone to college. They were both first generation, Michelle and her brother, Craig. And so this wasn't like an intellectual issue. This was an issue truly from his heart. And candidly, had he not had that courage, um, I would have quite happily stayed in Chicago, but because I knew how serious he was, 
um, would go visit schools and his conversations with kids about, you know, their lives would have meant many of them absent fathers. He had an absent father. He'd be very, very honest and vulnerable. He knew what was at stake here. And it was um, it was remarkable courage. And again, I honestly think in, in hindsight that I was really spoiled to have two bosses who would spend political capital, who would do things that were might be seen as non-traditional for Democrats. And it shouldn't be. It should be just the norm or for any politician, to your point. But if we're not willing to fight for our kids, Robbie, what are we willing to fight for? And at the end of the day, um, you know, they'll take some political heat. But I think they both believe that good policy at the end of the day would be good politics. If you're helping kids learn, if you're doing the right thing, everybody's going to win. But if you have to make some hard calls to get there, so be it. Well, Corey, that interview was a breath of fresh air. You know, I, I was a school principal when he was the secretary of education. So it was just really freaking cool to be able to sit down and talk to him about some of the, the policies that he was pushing that were affecting me in such a major way. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a great interview. And we want to thank you all for watching us. Make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube. Listen to us on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a little rating there, but only if it's five stars. And we'll see you guys next time.